So as you all recognize, the uh, practice is about the release, vimutti, uh, release, release from dukkha. Uh, dukkha is the unreleased. You can say it's the release from the restricted state. The Tathagata dwells with unrestricted citta. So the enlightened one has freed themselves from all restrictions. Restricted citta. Citta dwells unrestricted, released. In that restriction, the average person dwells restricted. And the way restriction fundamentally manifests is this two polarities, one called the self, highly restricted state. Self is localized. It's just in this very narrow space called a body. Lives in this. It's encased in the body. It's defined by restrictions, by its name, by its gender. Those are restrictions. By its nationality. Those are restrictions. It's defined by its beliefs and psychologies. It's restrictions. Things it knows and things it doesn't know. Things it likes and things it doesn't like. These are all restricted because it's got distinct limitations of what it can manage and be with without feeling disoriented. It's a restricted form. It, uh, it clashes, it conflicts with other selves, with other beings. It conflicts with feeling, it conflicts with nature. It, therefore, in its confliction, it generally tries to either get away from things or dominate them, control them, get push them away or make them behave or get on top of it all. And this is your average life struggle to do that. And it's pretty much, it doesn't really matter how old or young or successful you are, it's the same story. Instead of having to fight off diseases and uh, people who disagree. And you'd set up a society based upon living in these very restricted states, which is definitely prone to greed, to gaining more for myself, prone to aversion, fending off people I disagree with, prone to disagreement, disharmony, clashes because I don't see the way you see things. This is mine and that's yours. This is my belief and that's your belief and yada yada yada. So, and uh, this restricted state, it's uh, restricted by its emotional attachments, things I just can't bear. Uh, Sometimes people can't bear the very notion of of death, even the idea of it makes people upset. Separation, which is inevitable in this restricted state, we always experience ourselves as separate from others. It's a kind of conundrum because we're somehow separated from others yet we're also profoundly affected by others (laughs) 
Sometimes we wish we'd be more separate from others. People I don't like, I like to be completely separate from. I don't have to notice at all. Annoying people, bullying people, arrogant people that I disagree with, get separate from those. And the people I really like, I like to be not separate from them, bonded to them. This is a fundamental kind of a, uh, process for human beings, isn't it? You know, we're bonding to, to people we enjoy or like and fearing, dreading separation. Yeah, and then feeling very unhappy when we do get separated. And similarly, people we dislike, <laughs> not being able to stay separate from them. <laughs> we see them on the television, we read about them in the newspapers, we meet them in the street, we think, oh goodness me, I don't like that, you know, push that one away. So we're neither separate exactly nor bonded. So we've got this strange state, <laughs> the self, yeah. and unable to manage that because of course you can't manage this from the purely of self position taking some kind of position on right comfortable, happy, agreeable this is good, this is tasty this is proper this is take some position and hold on to it Yeah, then naturally that holding on is stressful restricted yeah, and uh, you can't really gain happiness through holding on. Because it's itself, it's you're holding on to what? To that which is restricted. And holding on is stressful. But there is a way out. That non-holding on. The unrestricted state. The realisation of something, the jitter blending into the, the cosmos, into something more universal. The other aspect of the restricted state is called the world. That's that which is around me, surrounds me, physically surrounds me. And um, it's defined by uh, geographical location. I mean, this particular place, these limitations, is defined also probably more powerfully than that by human construction, such as I belong to a nation. Yeah. I have to have a visa to go somewhere else because I live in this country. So I have to have a visa to go somewhere else. And the people in the other country, you know, I don't know about them. They're doing things differently. It could be the other, even the other state or the other province. Yeah. or the other party, political party. Yeah. So <laughs> this is also the human world. You know, the amount of defence policies there are and constant trying to find agreements between separate nations. Yeah. But the real agreement comes when you, you stop having separate nations. <laughs> That's when, it, when you realise you all belong to the earth. You can't separate the air you can't say this is my air and that's that's French air and this is English air and that's Canadian air and that's American air and that's Mexican air. It's just, you know. And of course, we're realising this. We also get this sense of what the climate and the environment's about. Defies national boundaries. You know? And yet we still adhere to the... Uh, uh, we've been conditioned into adhering to these national boundaries with tremendous... Why? Power. 
uh, money, organization. And so then we end up being governed or ruled by that viewpoint and ruled by those who have that viewpoint. We're no no longer led, we're ruled. We're no longer led to the way out of suffering, we're ruled to conform and behave with the promise that this will make you stop suffering, but it doesn't. This is the world. Both the world and the self are bound to mortality, change and death. This is why they're restricted. But there's a way out. And the Buddha says, when you come down to it, the very uh, uh, most direct experience, he said, you know, in this very fathom-long body, with its consciousness and mind and perceptions and feelings, is the world. The place where the world arises, where it forms, where it, it ceases, and where the path to the ending of the world is present. Mysterious, powerful statement in this very body, this fathom-long body. So he's definitely talking about this human form. Is the consciousness, the perceptions, the mind, the feelings that from which the world arises? How does it arise? The arising is called sankata conditioned and it arises through these conditioning forces called sankara yeah and these mean these these focus our attention on certain phenomena yeah well that's that 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 they focus our attention in terms of of uh, um, passion and aversion they focus our intentions in terms of acquisition and rejection yeah we focus our way of thinking about things in terms of me and you. And then, you know, it's very separative, restricted terms. So this is how our world gets constructed through these conditioning forces. So the very direct practice is beginning to experience these sankara and the practicing with them and softening them and releasing them through the body. We're doing in meditation. Yeah. So as that, you know, just begin to sense this. Are you in a body, really? You can say there is a body, but you're not. You don't experience the thing you see with your eyes, do you? You experience a warmth and a certain sense of solidity. And you experience boundaries to that. And can those boundaries be more open, less sealed off, less me and mine, less bound up, less defended, less needing to dominate. If you do that, you begin to undercut some of these powerful conditioning forces that, that do cause separation. And when they do, You'll notice it because you feel very much like me, I'm on my own, and then the world of time appears. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What should I be? What will I not be? Where was I? Where will I be? You know, all this, the world of other people, what does he think of me? What does she do? How am I compared with them? All this stuff starts happening from the restricted state. And the average person is just trying to get all those pieces to add up. 
Yeah, so that she's all right and he's okay and they leave me alone and da 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 da. And I've got all this sorted out for the future. And now, of course, with this, uh, you know, this COVID thing, suddenly all that's whisked away because we can't plan a future anymore, really. It becomes more guesswork because you never know when they're going to let you out. The world is locked down. It always has been locked down, really. But now it's becoming locked down in much more manifest ways. Yeah. We're all kind of, well, at least perhaps your country's a bit more open. We're all seized up in Britain. <laughs> and many countries, there's people dying all over the place and it closes down. Yeah. And you can't go anywhere. So, so you know, for a, in my life, it's not too much of a problem, really. I mean, I've, I do feel I'm sort of cooped up. That's a good sense of wanting to share and mingle is just the human, I think, a human need to feel comfortable, really, um, to, re to resist that, that isolation and also to allow the energies of love and compassion to flow through and dana, you know, which makes you feel really bright and alive. The beauty of that is the beauty of the human heart when it can feel it shares itself with others. And this is part of the joy of meeting and mingling, isn't it? When it's going right. Yeah. So now, okay, now you can't you can't go out and have dinner with somebody. And you can't say plan a vacation in two months' time because you don't know whether you and you can't go to the cinema or so on. So suddenly the lockdown, hey, you know, this is actually the, all those things that we relied upon to take away some of the rawness of the restricted state. Some of the pressure have been taken away. Now we can feel it quite strongly. But actually, it was kind of always like this. And, you know, part of the the paradox of someone alive is that you don't have those opportunities. You, know, you, you, you don't you don't go out for anything. You don't have a vacation. <laughs> you don't have something to look forward to. And uh, but what you do have, which makes it so amazing, really, is you have access to an unrestricted state. You train yourself to an unrestricted state where you feel you're part of the cosmos. Now, part of the cosmos may sound very airy-fairy or something to you. What does that mean? It means essentially you don't, don't feel shut into selfhood. You learn to flow and adapt with conditions, difficult conditions, uncomfortable conditions, comfortable conditions, pleasant conditions, unpleasant conditions. You cultivate a jitta that can open and receive all of that. You know, the aggressions, the love, the confusions, and stay open to that. And you know, yeah, and then the transformation is this 
what was held as an isolated self becomes or chitta unfolds from that into being an open rich center with wisdom and compassion that can allow phenomena conditional phenomena to meet it to pass through it and the training is to be to become wider more spacious than in these conditions so that they don't knock you around now this is not something that's a kind of monastic prerogative only but this is the training in this in cultivating this through, through various processes and so then the you know we might say very simply speaking you know the self becomes the, the chitta it's subjective the chitta that doesn't generate these boundaries it tends to abide in qualities such as loving kindness and as you reflect as you look at some of the these uh, chanting for example it says one you know pervades the all-encompassing world with a mind with a chitta with an intention with an inclination of goodwill of kindness of compassion of gladness appreciative gladness and of equanimity you pervade that's quite a key term because this is the kind of way of, of trying to define the sense of an energetic spreading it's not a surge it's not a jump it doesn't mean you go out and fix the world with your loving kindness you go and put some there and there no, you, you saturate it and that means that the energy of the heart permeates experience rather than favours this and rejects that and tries to make that like that and yeah and it doesn't do it just saturates it yeah and that's that's the practice so pleasant experience comes up you can sense that and rather than be grab it okay it's like this mudita gladness appreciation equanimity stay open stay open that's actually the widest uh, range where the mind is very open and sensitive and to all of it so then pervading the all-encompassing world means whatever phenomena arise are met with that kind of response the capacity to do that this is not a small thing and my suggestion is that what that's based on is this tremendous strength that comes from the embodied practice so the embodiment and the heart practices really come from the same place what is embodied what you feel is it has got an energy to it that supports the heart the heart jitta as heart and jitta and body are pretty much the same thing or they're very closely aligned what you feel in your heart you feel in your body what you feel in your body you feel in your heart so when the strength in the body that strengthens and supports the heart if the body is constricted the heart is constricted if the heart is confused 
the body feels agitated. And we work on one or the other. So very often the Buddha's recommendation is mindfulness of body is the beginning. Whereby you can, because with body you can feel the agitated or the constricted state, but you can generally find somewhere if you get the whole body whereby the spine is not restricted, the feet are not restricted, the palms of the hands are not restricted. Ah, and they will then help the rest of it to unfold, and then your heart energy also unfolds. And so it becomes quite natural. And that's that's practice. That's meditation practice. You know, now of course it's you think, well, you know, the details of every individual's life are their own details aren't they you know how do you practice with your what restricts you with your feeling of overwhelm by the amount of duties you have to do yeah feeling you know extremely despondent with the conditions around you what your nation is going through be very confusing and despondent Okay, well, let's put the nation to just that's that's a that's a social construction, which is extremely questionable to whether it, how valid it is at all. Anyway, <laughs> you know, it's what is that? It's like Britain only got created, I think, in the 18th century. It was it was a notion based on on imperial economic. Um, motivations it's stuck these people suddenly we all belong to the same thing <laughs> and what does that thing do it goes out and sends ships around the world and conquering people and getting stealing people's resources <laughs> that's the basis that's what britain's based upon <laughs> and of course you know you can create the right rapping you know the national anthem and the regalia and so forth to kind of make it look good <laughs> And the same thing, you know, it's not it's all countries, nations tend the countries get created around that holding of territory and ability to manifest power. Yeah, so but is that really a foundation for a healthy humanity? I don't think so. And we begin to you see, you know, as you see, these these nations are extremely stressed because they're beginning to find almost uh, unresolvable cracks uh, uh, within the structures of people who are left out, you know, inequalities, uh, lower classes, um, you know, all kinds of internal divisions, because the foundation of it is not harmony, but power. Not sharing, but gaining. So, with that kind of sankara running, these are the results. And the results bear out in the external world and they also bear out in the internal world. People are more psychologically confused and the rate of mental illness increases.
you, know, you call it obsessive compulsion disorders, yeah, you know, but they're, they're not, you know, and so that, or, or distinct depressions, anxieties, addictions, all these things increase. Depression, number one, um, affliction, meaninglessness, loneliness, uh, social dysfunction, dystopia, sociopathic behavior, things that were not common, but the end result of the restricted process, crushing, cracking people up. (laughs) Now, so, you know, the opposite of this, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind of heart of goodwill, yeah. And so he says, well, look, let's forget about nation, geography right now. Let's just start to, here I am, and what can I reach? You know, is it my, my people around me, my colleagues, my friends, my associates? Sometimes you've got more in common with people living 700 miles away. You know, dumber colleagues. You get some sense. It's very important to cultivate that. And now we have... The flip side of all this restriction is we now we develop these channels of online communication, which is something whereby you can feel connected to. Yeah. And this is the other aspect of the human situation now is also an increase in goodwill, grassroots goodwill, grassroots communality, grassroots endeavours to protect environment, to share with neighbours, to look after the sick, to help bring people in. This has always been an aspect of the human mind, hospitable and kindly. Yeah, so it's not by no means all bad, but certainly it's, it's, this, this is the choice, isn't it? Yeah. Which, which way one turns one's attention. And you find that generally the more profitable is just to turn your attention to cultivating communality, uh, sympathy, empathy, wherever you can, and make that, make, keep reaching out to those you can, you can touch, those who you can, even those you can ask a favour of. Because asking a favour is a sign, if you ask me a favour, I know that you're my friend. If you ask me a favour, I know you're my friend because I know you feel you trust me and so forth. So I, I'd like you to ask me a favour. I feel honoured by that. Not uh, pathetic you are. <laughs> this is this is just cultivation. So then the alternate values you begin to cultivate. Now, often what is not so commonly understood or, or or talked about in certainly in Buddhist circles in the West is is much more the sense of the um, social or the conditioned life, uh, relationships, um, livelihood, uh, so on. Very much emphasis on meditation, which is fine, but then you come to a point in meditation when you know maybe you've got this idea of you know you can step back and allow things to rise and pass and that's really good. You don't get caught in reactivity. You're not following every thought and impulse. You're not following those emotions and instincts. And you realise you've got to follow something. You can't just sit there. 
you will follow something. So could that something that you follow be quite carefully tuned? Now this is where, you know, the monastic or someone has a great advantage because we have a whole set of duties that are laid down. Things you don't do and things you do do that are laid down. Our duty is to pay respects to elders. Our duty is to offer a dhamma to those who need it, if it were asked. It's our duty. Um, yeah. So, And it's not a job, it's a duty, which is a different quality. It's an honour. It allows one's heart to open and move out, paying respects, uh, honouring, yeah. and also the restraint to live as with a sense of frugality to the fore, renunciation. So this is definitely, you know, a training to emulate. In, in monastic life, it's all laid down in various codes. Some of them are actually quite archaic and redundant, but the simple principles pertain. So, like, I think I might have mentioned the other week, just the qualities that bring around social harmony, right? The four qualities, uh, which... You get them and you see, oh right, that's what's gone wrong because the first one is dana, which is generosity and sharing. So you look around, okay, who, where are our world leaders are, are being role models for generosity and sharing? Um, where are they sharing their resources? And, uh, oh, right. <laughs> Don't follow those guys, you know. Uh, yeah, how many of them are actually into dana? which is not just money, it's also sharing one's time, attention, resources, you know, hospitality, looking after each other, and encouraging that. That's a world leader, one who encourages sharing and cooperation, not holding on and, and um, gaining more than the next person. How many people do that? Well, okay, that's what we should try and do. Piyavaja, gentle speech. How many world leaders manifest that? <laughs> well, you know, pitiful, isn't it, really? Gentle speech that goes to the heart is truthful and is carefully placed with sensitivity to the mind of another person. This is definitely a training. Yeah. Even if one is critical, we say, well, Excuse me, may I take the opportunity to mention something that I think would be for your benefit? Because it seems to me that these actions are, are not, you're not, you know, you can be better than this, you know, and it's going to cause you harm. So even being able to correct each other, if there's an opening with a sense of, um, of modesty. And this sense of modesty is actually the root word in the old Vedic culture, vinya, the word vinya, which is now applied sometimes purely to monastic discipline, meant something like humility. Yeah, which meant, or respect, you could say, means I am just a little being, I respect the truth, I respect wisdom, I respect, I respect you, and I live in a way that is respectful and uh, you know, respects your individuality, namaste, you know. And so this sense of vinya is about relationship, respectful relationship, not about rules, rights and wrongs. So 
This leads to the third quality, Atacharya, which means love of service, charya conduct, conduct that is meaningful, meaningful conduct, service. This transforms the work ethic into, well, most people work. Work is a very powerful conditioning force for people. They've got to get to work on time. They've got to meet things done. They've got to arrive at the figures. They've got to make sure they don't get fired. These are very powerful conditioning forces. You see, in the restricted state, this work is an aspect of the restricted state. I mean, conventional work, it means it's, it's surrounded by fear. Fear of getting fired and pressure to get things done. That's an aspect of restricted. Now, service is different. Service is love. And it means... You just do the best you can. You're offering, you're a volunteer, everybody's a volunteer. You offer what you can and you offer it and you, you know, and you offer it with an intention for the welfare of others and you learn. And with that, because it's unrestricted, you get a lot of good energy from that. So it's a kind of work, but you get energized by it because you're doing what you love. So really to, to look into what one's doing in livelihood, is it possible to, to see what is lovable in it? You know, at least I'm providing, by this I'm providing requisites for my family and friends. I'm living in a blameless way. And I, I'm enjoying, I'm taking a sense of pride in my workmanship or my craft. So then this is, this is, this is you know, the joy of meaningful endeavour rather than the grind of daily, <laughs> grudging grind of daily, you know, structured work in the restricted state. And I think, you know, we'll find that certainly in, in, in Buddhist cultures a lot of it runs on service. Monasteries run on service, Dharma centers run on service. People love serving, they come to join in and help out. And the monastery we have, uh, we used to have anyway, when, before the lockdown, you know, months where, where we'd open up the forest of woodland for volunteers who would just love to come and camp out in the woodland and do work there and just so enjoy it, you know taking out weeds and building fences and protecting trees and planting things. And monasteries always run on that. People who want to enjoy service because it is enjoyable. There's a certain point with gaining money whereby you only get so much satisfaction. Once your basic needs are met, maybe a little bit spare, there's no more to be got out of making money. Yeah. Yeah. The real enjoyment comes from feeling of meaningful purpose. It's Atacharya. And the fourth uh, quality, Samanatata, which means dealing with things with a sense of evenness, impartiality. So this is like to you and to him and to her and to them, same sort of approach. Yeah. Not my little clique, not just these ones, but and spread it out evenly. And also, 
to others as to myself. So uh, I respect this, I respect that, I care for this, I have respect for this, I honour this, I honour that. Trying to cultivate in this way. These are aspects that bring around social harmony because if, if three people are doing that with each other, you've got something pretty uh, strengthening. You begin to really see how this human bit can work and how you can create a kind of a, a structure of mutual support because we don't, we can't do it on our own on that condition level. Some of us can't live on their own. We, we depend upon people giving us food yeah. and shelter. And so that's important to recognize. This is where you see the sense of the, the conditions are significant. You know, maybe you're right to allow things to rise and pass away, but at the same time you go out for alms food. Uh, and certainly before lockdown, it's one of our primary duties you could say it was always voluntary you go walking to the local town because you are doing a service by manifesting an open calm presence on the street that allows people to be open yeah. and there's no no soliciting you know you keep yourself quite Bowl quite covered, modest, don't say anything, stand back. And somebody notices, they see that. What are you? And you provide something where a person on the street, where normally everybody's running past and getting their own to their, their stores to get their goods and to get on to work, you know, in a very, you know, particularly conditioned place, is it something where they could just meet somebody who's got no agenda apart to stand there who's not in a hurry who's not going anywhere who doesn't not asking for anything and that meeting then the natural result is food oh yeah oh yeah i'll get you some food and this happens so many times without any preparation it's really really confirming something about fundamental about human beings this is not this is in England you know people who don't know meditation or anything you know, because they, they they but they all have hearts and hearts want to be open and so often the restricted state of the social world and the social conditions the social structures through which you move doesn't really support that openness everybody's in a hurry everybody's busy everybody's getting theirs everybody's good you know very important that and many beautiful occasions on his um arms fairing you know <laughs> one time i was in a town and um i was on a long two long walk and i had a summoner with me uh, summoner was a kind of trainee monk and uh, some fellow saw us and said, oh, you doing, you doing, you, you Krishnas? I said, no, no, we're Buddhists. Oh, Buddhists and this and the other. What are you doing? I said, well, you know, we come, we, we come, we're going on this long pilgrimage 
and we just live on whatever arms food. So he said, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing. He said, look, oh, oh, here's the keys to my house, which is just down that street number. He gave us the number of the house. You open the door and let yourself in, and I'll see if I can get, get you some food or something. But if I'm not back, help yourself, and when you leave, just leave the key under the doormat. Right? So, I mean, can you imagine that? Somebody, a stranger, you give the stranger the keys to your house, tell them to go in and help themselves. Where does that come from? So this is possible. And this is really what, uh, uh, you know, Vinaya is about, realising we belong to something bigger than just this narrow, restricted state. We belong, we're most comfortable in an, ex- in an unrestricted state where there's generosity, sharing, trust, respect, morality. These are not, these are powerful forces and qualities. And what the Buddha, one of his transformations in that societies was the cosmos, the Vedic cosmos, which he still respected, with its devas and brahmins and brahmas and maras, he still he still manifested. Now you can say well, weird stuff, creepy stuff, just because you don't like, you know, the configurations of you imagine devas with pointy ears or funny hats or something. But you know, if you don't, this is one of the tragedies of our modern world: is we've neutralized the cosmos we've taken every other force every other form of intelligence we've denied it exists the world of nature the world of supernature is all dead (laughs) yeah and in the time of the buddha it wasn't dead the cosmos was saturated with various forms of intelligence that that could be that a summoner could commune with and and blessings would arise yeah and the Buddha said, okay, this is true, but the most important thing is the human being, by aligning themselves to right principle and right practice, that they can feel in their own body. They can feel the sense of harmony and integrity in their own body. They can feel it in their heart. By aligning themselves to these principles of rightness and virtue, you know, then you act as the center, the true axis of the cosmos. And your behavior helps to keep the cosmos manifesting in this human plane. The cosmic order called Dharma, which is the name for the cosmic order, Dharma, the duties that you do to maintain the cosmic order. And the Buddha said, yeah, I teach this particular Dharma Vinaya. I teach a Dharma Vinaya based not upon, you know, but based upon what we can know for ourselves in our own embodiment. And you begin to recognize that. Whenever you touch into that, and you get the sense of what is virtue, truth, loving kindness, and it rings, sits in you, and it suffuses you, you know, this is right. This is where I feel good. This is blameless. This is where I come out of the restricted state. Like the Buddha said, if you manifest the quality of loving kindness for the length of time it takes to pull a cow's udder, then you have not wasted the day. 
says, if you manifest the quality of loving kindness for long as it takes to snap a finger, you have manifested jhana. You have absorbed into it one of the potent, fruitful qualities in the universe. And from this, you must take your lead from this, trust it, and begin to integrate that into the way you live. Through right relationship, communality, sharing, service, and so forth. And so this is the certainly how we come out of the restricted state. He didn't just say it's meditation. Meditation very important to verify this, this, this reality. It's also about life, living life, training in one's life. When these two come together, the training in your life verifies what you experience in your meditation and your meditation verifies what you experience in your life training. And you know they both lead to liberation. They taste the same taste. This is the defining quality of Dhamma Vinaya. It says just like the oceans, whatever ocean has the taste of salt, all true Dhamma Vinaya has the taste of release and liberation from the restricted condition. <laughs> So, I hope one or two points are worthy of uh, recollection and uh, consideration. Um, so we'll uh, close the session for today, but really, you know, take whatever's been useful and really dwell and linger in it and uh, have faith in it, have courage and have faith in it. It's something you can trust, absolutely. You can trust it.